I'm Danny Belvin. And I'm Danica Brown. And we are biracial unicorns. And I, I, I take it back. Yeah, book me a ticket to Mars. Let's go! Ready? I'll bring the sunblock. Or they say in England, sun cream, which... <sighs> you know, Mars is too cold for me. I can't hang. <laughs> I just... I, if you if you listen to our show in succession, we literally just did a whole mini-sode about Mars. And I, I've changed my mind. T- take me. Don't put all the people I think deserve to be there. Take... After this last month, uh, just take me to Mars. It's been a long month. Yeah. It show has. It's just... Uh, There's one of those things that's still like in the spring cleaning. So we have like New Year's resolutions and it goes to spring cleaning of just like, how can you thrive and survive? Like, do the cleanup and be better. Still stick into your... I can't hear any of it. Like... <laughs> nope. Nope. Mm. But we will. We'll survive. We'll make it through. Just oh. like we've had uh, to survive PWIs oh, our whole lives. Oh, she picked up what I was laying down. <laughs> you see that? Ah, oh, that's teamwork. Yes, yes, we are talking about predominantly white institutions. PWIs this month. We already have our new toolkit episode up. So go ahead and listen to that real quick. It's actually has some brevity to it, which is shocking for both of us. Stated we're going to be breaking it up into academic PWIs and more professional. Of course, there's going to be obviously some overlay into both, but we'll, tr- we'll try to keep each into their resided areas. But yeah, we're we're cracking into t- today. And I think it's something that is very, like most of the topics, very near, dear, and very real to both Danny and I. Yes, yes. And like Tamika said, there will be some overlap. Myself, personally, I have a segment of my professional career that is in the academy as it were so i think i have a hard time separating mm. um so there will be a little bit of bleeding but hopefully you can all all join us for these things so why why do we want to talk about them in the first place danny well because predominantly white institutions are the norm <laughs> like mm. um i think like if you if you boil it all down The majority of institutions still continue to be predominantly white. Um, And I think for most of us who live in the United States, we will have to deal with PWIs at some point. Maybe not every single institution you deal with, but I think you would be hard pressed to go through your life without having to interact with a PWI. And I think us as mixed race experience it a little bit differently. I mean, everyone experiences it differently, I suppose. But I think for you and I, for example, we are both mixed with white. So I think our interactions are are nuanced and complicated yes. in PWIs. Definitely. And when we talk about these things, once again, I think it's for one, a place of refuge and amplifying that voice for BIPOC people and our mixed race people. And for those who want to continue the work in their journey of being a co-conspirator, this is one of those another layers of understanding privilege. Mm. When you are in the majority that in itself is a privilege. And I know I had this talk ages ago with people about, well, it's numbers, there's just more of us, but we're talking about the 
these these societies where there's control of hiring, there's control of, of who can have access to, and there's a lot more sway and power of the access and who is in and out of, whether it be schools or whether it is in a professional sense. And so there's a lot more power of what could be more diverse. So this is just another recognizing and uh, exposing that privilege of what it's like to be a majority and what that the effects it puts on your BIPOC friends and also what you can do in that place mm. of, of privilege. Mm. To that point, looking at systemic racism is always hard because it's so huge. Mm -hmm. But I think by looking at a PWI, you get a similar view, but more narrow. So I think it's also helpful when trying to dismantle white supremacy to look at these smaller examples as a stepping stone. Oh, yes. I love that. Because I think something that you just said when we were talking about our release videos, like how are we expecting people to call it out if they don't know what it looks like? And I think we both have heard before when people say, I have never experienced racism. I've never seen it. And I'm like, you have <laughs> on both of us, but I don't think you understand what it looks like. And so that is the perfect way of, of putting it. We're actually just getting that microscope and we're telling you what that actually kind of looks like. So Cool. Yeah, yeah. I think um, that's absolutely true. Okay, so when we're looking at an academic environment, where do we see examples of this? I see a lot of this. We've been talking about it. We've talked about it in the push out when we read that book. Yeah. Uh, and we did the review, which I thought was great. We talked about it even what we wish we would have known in Black History Month about that and what they wish they would have taught us in school. We've been hinting around it, but hitting it on the nose. I see a lot in school with, with uh, curriculum within favoritism, mentorship or lack thereof for BIPOC people, uh, cultural competency. Once again, for those who are teachers and students, it's a grading scale, testing. You see this on a large scales. And if you want, we can go into there a little bit more specifically and break those down into it. But those were some of the main categories within that from my end that I saw. And of course, I know you probably have a vast one, like you said, not only just being a student, but actually being in the world and being that your job is in the world of academia. So I'd love to hear your take and what you see in that as well. I think for me, like, I think all of these are true. And I think we've talked a lot about curriculum and cultural competency. So for me, while you were saying these things, I kind of latched on to this idea of mentorship mm -hmm. and think that that's a really great example. I think that the truth is when it comes to mentorship in the academic setting, it's usually easiest if there is some common ground between yes. mentor and mentee. And I've experienced that on both sides, I guess. As a student, some of my biggest mentors like saw something in me <laughs> that reminded them of themselves. So I think in some of those cases, they were white. In some of those cases, they were people of color. But I think about like some of my closest and most passionate mentor-mentee relationships were really rooted in sameness. My mentor in grad school was also a first-generation college student. So I think she saw that in me and really wanted to support and uplift me, knowing that it's, it's a 
historically underrepresented group in college Mm -hmm. and something that we don't have as like first generation college students. We don't have that internal support. Like we don't have parents who can kind of guide us through the process. Like we're just kind of blind going into this setting and not knowing how to succeed. And so having someone who is there to help walk you through what for many people is like second nature is really beneficial. So I think When we're talking about these predominantly white institutions, we're talking about institutions where a lot of the faculty ends up being white. And so I think it's harder to find a mentor for students of color in that situation. And I was talking to a professor of color recently who was, we were having this discussion about how the lift and the job is more difficult for professors of color than Mm -hmm. white colleagues. And part of it is is just that within the mentorship because we often have more students who come to us. And so while that's like a beautiful part of the job, it is an additional unpaid part of the job. And of course, you know, a lot of professors, I think, regardless of race, do want to support their students. So it's like, not going to turn people away. But when it's like, you have one person of color on faculty, and you have an 80% like group of the cohort is people of color, like they're going to go to that professor because they mm-hmm. see something of themselves in them. So I think that is a, a huge, perhaps unseen portion of of the dangers of predominantly white institutions that i love that point of view it actually slightly touched on it necessarily like from the professor or teacher's point of view in uh, one of the articles of uh discussing of racial microaggressions the narrative of the african-american faculty of predominantly white uh universities I i won't go too crazy into it but they did talk about how even white students perceive their uh, the faculty of color and they're talking about being almost seen as not not nearly uh, less intelligent not mm. as comfortable and so so even with that of just like saying that they teach at a predominantly white school they're not going to get as high of ratings they're not even going to be able to forge a relationship and being able to kind of bridge that understanding and be able to teach up to their actual peak because there's this underlying bias of how people view teachers of color which yeah. of course if you're not getting a good rating your classes are not sell it's going to be harder for that professor to go into those higher levels of education get tenure like and then you're going to see the higher you go up in education the fewer people of color you're going to see making those decisions of what it looks like on the trickle down of education and so yeah that totally like i can see like that that circle right there yeah that is definitely an unseen thing within that I think that's true. My own experience in graduate school, there were more white students than students of color. And and that does depend on the program and the school. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of factors there. But I think that's, that's true. And even when you're taking the GRE, for example, which is the t- a test that you have to take for a lot of graduate school programs. They give you all these weird statistics after you take it and you test and you get your, your placement. And like first generation, like the education level of my parents, my race and my background, my socio, like that's also something to be, to consider when we're talking about PWIs in the education system is the whole system is set up for a particular type of student because the people who are in charge and who are creating these tests, Mm -hmm. who are running these universities, they are 
limited by their own view. And um, it's almost always white folk. Mm-hmm. And we're not even talking about just even just higher education. You see this even in high schools and middle schools. You you see these it's like like these little building blocks, these starting these little breadcrumbs, kind of leading up to that trail. And yeah, it's. I mean, we have both experienced being that in both in high school and in higher education, and, and what that seems like uh, on that back front. What does that mean, just like even interpersonally or like emotionally for you? Because you have it on both sides. So that, <laughs> what do you feel like as being a student in these predominantly white institutions? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it depends on the time of, of life for mm. me. I think, you know, when I was very, very young, when I was like elementary school, middle school, I think I was I was less aware of those things. But then I think, you know, I was a very feisty high schooler and was like so happy to be like standing up and calling shit out as I saw it. But I think like ultimately at the end of the day, it's like those are not the fights that students should be having to have. Mm. because like while it's like there is power in in like the debate and in taking on these these firm stances and making these arguments like that should not be an argument that students have to have they shouldn't have to have the argument of like where am i in this curriculum like why are you teaching me this like you're not (laughs) you know those are not not the arguments what do you think I, I agree. And I think just even like, even if you were having that, once again, the fiery Latina uh, rhetoric, does that make sense? So yeah. not only is it having those those places to where it's like, hey, let me bring this up to you. Once again, the biases of having a predominantly white teacher in curriculum, when you buck up against that, you are met with the, the bias of that, even like the way... You, you dress and present and speak and even the way you may even reflect in your homework or reading list. There's just none of you. There's no way for you to be your most authentic self because it has been made to amplify and show a very European mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, the style. If you don't necessarily fit into it, you're obviously going against it. So if you dress differently, your hair is different. If you speak differently if you're wondering where you are like you said in the curriculum then you're being disobedient and thus being disciplined and looked at as difficult to where then you will not get the favoritism or the opportunities because i think as we both know as you know kids are just first going to college from their family you have to rely on these teachers these guidance counselors you have to kind of at least for me i'm like i don't know what i'm doing i need to re like rely on these other adults uh these other gatekeepers and that's what it felt like i had to appease gatekeepers in order to get the access to it but if you are not within that that click of favoritism or in that mentorship kind of relationship in there it is very difficult yeah it's very difficult and i think like bucking up against that that favoritism, like if you are not a favorite, um, it's hard to even take those complaints anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, is is like so. Here's here's another personal example of um, in graduate school, my very first semester, I was definitely just like in there mouthing off about my my degrees in theater mouthing off about uh, not wanting to read any theater by plays by dead white men because their stories didn't speak to me like in a classroom with like 
you know, half white people taught by a white professor whose work was in Russian theater. And she was not happy um, and continued to be like an opponent of me through my time in that program. And that was also the lowest grade I got in a class. And it's hard to not think that it was in part because of me pushing back against what is perceived as is the canon in my field. Mm, that's even true. Once again, because of the safeties in the majority, where do you go when you want to speak up against the majority? When someone has that majority, their de- their ideology becomes supremacy. And anything that challenges that is met with hostility, isolation, and exclusion. Yeah. Dot. <laughs> yeah. So. I think all of that is is true. And I think as far as like resources uh, that we're talking about, I think Dear White People, which we've mentioned as part of the toolkit, deals a lot mm. with these issues. And then also the article, Your Predominantly White Organization, yes, even yours, is exactly one live-tweeted racist event away from public disgrace, fits in here too. It also fits in, this is one of those fits into both mm. academic and professional. But it's it talks a lot about how there's a certain amount of... I hate to use the this word, but gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's a little buzzwordy, and like who even knows <sighs> what it means anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm 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 diverging. So when this word came out, I'm like, yes, that is that is a thing, and you're it's be, it's been turned into that. And you're right, it's like it's the word like rhetoric. What's the other word? There's another word where I'm like, every time I hear it, I'm like, it was such a good word, and now they've ruined it. So yes, sorry, I didn't mean to. I yeah, yes. But the article does talk about it and uses the word gaslight to describe it. But there's this this attitude that many people have in professional settings and within academics that everything is as it should be. Mm. And so people not only, and I should say white people, but I think it could be anyone, not only gaslight BIPOC into believing that, but also themselves <laughs> into believing that. And that is the danger of yes. a PWI is because it's very easy when you're in a group with people who are very similar to yourself to convince yourselves of such a thing, that everything is fine, things are the way they should be. We are an exception. We yes. are less racist than other other white people in other institutions because we do this, because we have this person on faculty, because we have this many students of this background. And just, it, it's dangerous, mm-hmm. I want to say. Yeah. No, there there was actually like a quote that I saw from there that talking about like the many forms that it takes as far as like, you know, gatekeeping and all white hiring committees mm-hmm. and um, inadequate mem- uh, mentorship that we talked about, the toxic grad program, soul crushing racism within the industry. Like this is all quotes from that amazing article. And yes, I think that's the part that's the most heartbreaking about PWIs is that, like you said, it's people within them don't see it. And yeah. That, I mean, how many, like, oh, wait, we're a diverse program. We'll look all around us. And they literally are not seeing. There might be maybe two, maybe three max of people of color or even women. And they, they're they not seeing it. And that grieves my heart that there are people who, like you said, actual gaslit into these organizations that think, oh, but not us. We've done this training. Oh, not us. Or was it um, 
I wasn't on TikTok. They had this trend where they had um, what the school looks like on the pamphlet what the school mm-hmm. looks like in real life, what they put on their brochures or what they see on the tour versus what they see. Girl, I was weak. I was dead. I was absolutely dead. Or You know have what like, that reminds yeah. me of um, uh, to bring us back to Scrubs <laughs> callback? <laughs> The episode where, like, Turk was on their college brochure twice. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. So they want to put him as representing for Sacred Heart and putting it out there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. It's it's so much of that. Or even just, like, cutting, like, me going from a PWI to an, an HBCU. Like, it's like... I don't have that experience of going to a, a historical black college or university, but I, I can imagine how like just different, even just being able to wear your hair or wear your clothes or just being who you are in your, mo- in your skin for, for right. that. It must be so crazy. And I, like I said, I think dear white people is a really good thing that touched on, but you said that, that even yours, I think is so applicable for both academic and professional. Yeah. And there's this, um, I do want to share a quote from that article that speaks a little bit to one of the the quick fixes that a lot of uh, academic institutions seem to think is enough. So the quote is, electing BIPOC people to positions of organizational leadership is necessary, but even this is insufficient. In predominantly white organizations, relying on the racial competence of individual officers and program committees to prevent racist disgrace is not enough to shift an entire culture. So I, what I really love about this um, is one, it's it's stating something that we state all the time, that it's like not the responsibility of the one BIPOC person in the room to change the system. Yep. And two, it's recognizing that these institutions or organizations have a culture. So what we're talking about is not just replacing individuals, we're talking about upheaving and redoing the culture of an organization or an institution. If I see a place that just says, hey, you know, we're responding to, let's say, let's say Black Lives Matter with this sensitivity training that they have thrown together and it has perhaps, hopefully, not always, a person of color leading it. I'm like, I don't, who are you hiring? Mm. Who's who's your top tier? Like, I don't want to see the training that is not going to be null and void or mandatory because then it makes the person who's leading it their issue and their hill to die on instead of, like you said, a whole culture change. Yeah. So, yeah. Ooh, that's good. I've I've been hearing about organizations that have been grappling and and this is a little bit outside of academic but i think Mm -hmm. it it fits here too organizations or schools that are grappling with changing the culture and changing the system because it's the catch-22 of we want to change a system and have it be more welcoming and more accepting of people from different backgrounds and not upholding white supremacist attitudes. Like we want it to be open to BIPOC people. We want BIPOC people here. We want to change. But on the other hand, saying, but we have to serve the people who are here and in the room and those being white people. So I think you cannot have both. Like, Mm -hmm. you need to recognize that it is a total upheaval and change. And yes, you can have white people in this new system, but it can't be centered on exclusively them. 
Mm-hmm. And once again, that goes back to that, who does it favor? Who does it, like, I love that illustration of the fishes upstream. Who is it making upstream life for? Yeah. And who's having to go against that current constantly? And there's, and I think that's another reason why it's so hard to crack into these PWIs, because the moment you mention there might be less space for the majority, there's the pushback. Yeah. And I think that's going to be really hard for some of our listeners to hear is like when we say maybe it means that the number of applicants that are white that gets into these certain schools may decrease. I mean, that I mean, right there, because then it looks like, oh, it's affirmative action or they only got here based on race, which that in itself is an emotional mind job when people of color get into these PWIs and people don't think they deserve it. Like that, that is a real flipping thing right there. That moment you start thinking that, then they start feeling that the persecution is against them. And that, and I think that's why we have that constant battle of, we're not saying it cannot be also for you. It's just, can't, you cannot be the center of the universe. You cannot be who the system's made for to succeed. Yeah. I think it's important to mention here the role that colorism plays in all of this as well. And I think as mixed race people, we have to be very, very aware of colorism. Oh, yeah. And our own privilege that comes because of colorism. So I think within an academic setting, like there is this push to like bring in more BIPOC people, but it's like, who are the BIPOC people that are being brought in? Who are the BIPOC people who are not being Mm. brought in? Because let me tell you, as a mixed race girl who's medium tone, I do get picked if I'm going to be one of the ones. And that's a privilege that I have to check of just like when I'm looking at higher sight, when I'm in advanced physics classes or in theater, like who's getting cast? Who's getting that? If they have to have someone of color, it's probably going to be me or someone even lighter than me. Mm-hmm. But if it's not going to be my beautiful dark sisters and brothers, it's just so they get to tick that box. That's what we were talking about with Bane of just uh, in England, why they don't use like black uh, Asian. They had like a they had like a an acronym that was sweeping everybody else. So these companies were hiring 60 percent Asian and saying, look, we have diversity and being like, well, that's not everybody. You're not including like, you know, black and other Eastern Europeans. And that's the thing. They said we can have a couple of people who are mixed or on the lighter spectrum and feel like, look, look how diverse we are. But it still looks like you. It looks looks more like you than actual diversity because it it makes it easier for you. It makes it more palatable for you. Yeah. So with with that in mind, what are your thoughts on HBCUs? Are they the solution to this? What where do they stand in all of this? You know, I have me personally having to even like check my own identity in this because first it's so funny. I up until high school, and this is I don't know if I'm probably gonna I didn't think these were real. My, I did not, my first exposure to an, an, um, an HBCU was a fictional one of a different world. I don't know. Did you ever watch a different world? Not like I I've seen episodes, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't like a fan. Yeah. So it was a spinoff of the Cosby show and it it followed one of the older daughters and her going to with this all black college. And I remember watching as a young person being like, this place can't be. Now here's the kicker. I asked, is this place real? But the thing is, it was a fictional college. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't. So when someone's like, no, it's not real. And I go, oh, so I literally went like my entire life until realizing that there are, because in my mind, a place where teachers and students and coaches and like, 
where everyone is a person of color just seemed like this magical, mystical place. It just didn't seem real. So by the time I got to high school and thought that this could actually be something for me, it was very strange. But then also like I said, going to that being mixed of like, but where do I really fit into there? Do I really deserve that place? And I really struggled when I was trying to decide, is this something I want to do? Obviously, my pocketbook decided for me where I was going to go. <laughs> and that's real. I don't know if that is the solution because I having more historical black colleges is not going to break down PWIs. It's not going to dismantle them. It, that That's that's a numbers game and it's, it's a resources game. PWIs will always have more resources than historical black colleges yeah. um, and universities. And and that's the thing. And that's even if um, we have the video link to the short video, but even then they're talking about people who were debating whether or not to go to these colleges, admitting that some of they're a little behind sometimes on their resources. Maybe the curriculum is not nearly as thorough or as good, or maybe not nearly as many opportunities. And so it kind of gives them pause of wanting to partake in these. And so I don't think it's a solution. Do I think they're they're necessary? I do think they are necessary. Do I think they should be supported? There's a really great PBS movie I'm trying to get my hands on because I keep seeing clips about it that goes a little bit more into the details of it. And I can uh, link that information in our um, in our show notes. But I, I don't know, I kind of am a little jealous I didn't get to dive into that. But at the same time, I don't know if I would have been in that headspace to really enjoy it. But is it a solution? No. Do I think that they're divisive? I don't. Do I think it's something that needs to have our support? Yes. It's been known that they have been cut funding in their last on the decline in the last 10 years. So I think more attention has been drawn to historical black colleges lately. And I, I hope they continue to get the supporting and backing because they've been on the forefront of the civil rights movement. They continue to go for change. They... So a brilliant minds have come out of all black colleges. I just think that there's too much for them to to offer, but I just don't think they're the solutions to dismantling PWIs. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um I think that they definitely serve a purpose. I think that they definitely need more support. I think it goes back to the conversation we had last month about sisterhood, right? Mm -hmm. There's something beautiful about being able to show up to a place without having to explain yourself, without having to contextualize your experience in that place. So I think to that end, like they are very important for academic experience. To your point, do I think it is going to dismantle PWIs. No, no, I don't think that it's going to fall on HBCUs uh, to dismantle PWIs. I think that we can do both. I think that we can continue to have HBCUs and we can work to dismantling PWIs. I already hear the question, (laughs) and and I know you do too, is like, well, then why can't white people have their own colleges? Yeah, I know. It's like, it's like, uh, if, if like, please don't, please don't ask. <laughs> please don't. Because it's, you're, then you haven't been listening to the entire episode. Like, we're just literally saying it, they're already all for you. <laughs> Like, I don't the know whole the whole system yeah, is for it's, you. It, it's for you. And so part of me is just like, but, but when people ask me that, like when people say, you know, why have historical black colleges? They want to separate themselves. I'm like, well, you obviously don't know the history because these were made out of 
this was sprung from forth when slaves were finally free being like, we don't know how to read and write and we're not allowed into these establishments. So literally having to make our own. So they weren't forged of wanting to self-separate. This was, they're already being segregation. So this was born out of the need of necessity and being able to survive in this post civil war world. So I don't want to hear that people are for separating themselves. So that's one. And two, it's all for you. Do you want to go? Do you? I, I guess when people ask me that, I always respond with, do you want an all white college? Or when there's subgroups of like, mm. there's a black student union. I'm like, do you want one? Do you want, is that what you would like? Because it, it sounds like that's what you would write. Same thing of like, why can't I say the N word? Would you like to say the N word? Is that, is that like when like, that's like, I'm, that's I how I was, I love that. Was, like, I, would you like to? I love like, that response to Mika. <laughs> I just, it's beautiful. That's how I start to respond. Like, why can't we have one? Would you like one? Well, yeah. And if they say like to me, cause there's no, if you say yes, then that's on you. Then you have a lot more work to do. And if you say no, then, then why are you beefing right now? Like yeah. the, the what is your what is your issue? Because I don't think you can white people can't go to historical black colleges. Do you you want to go? Here's the application. Good luck. Go for it. Like I just I don't understand the motive behind it. It's once again it's that impoverished spirit when something buck up against that there might not be you might have a little less. There's something like carnal that like reeks inside someone that's just like but but why can't. But where's mine? But I don't of oh, that that instinct though. Whew, it's deep. Yeah. So I I think we do need to talk a little bit about strategies for surviving in these um, <laughs> these PWIs, particularly in the academic setting. We already touched a little bit on on mentorship and the mm-hmm. importance of finding someone to serve as a guide. And like I shared, I think. You know, it could be a person of color or it could be a white person. But I think finding some common ground and somebody who cares for and supports you is really, really important. And it might be a professor. It might be an advisor. It might be, you know, it can take on many different, different forms. I think another option is like a a student mentor. It doesn't have to be somebody who is completely invested in the system for employment. It could be someone who is experiencing the same things you are. Um, So I think groups are really important. You know, groups like like Mecha or Laudasa or whatever, you know, ethnic inspired, racial inspired groups of peers who are similar to you are, are really key. I agree because I think it makes it amplifies that voice. So, like I, I think about like for Danny who had the issue with her teacher, it was her against her teacher, but her teacher had the establishment behind her. But if Danny had a voice or a group behind her that amplifies that, so it it becomes less of a Danny the establishment issue. It becomes there is this group of people who are not jiving with what you are doing and saying and what you're implementing. And so I, I think that's the best one. I think when you're in these establishments as well, once again, having that that safe place and, and that self-care and realizing that you are, you're not alone in this. And I think, I know it sounds crazy, at least for me, sometimes when I read other people's accounts, I know mm. it, it, sometimes when I just read, like we talked about to follow the, um, the change the museum 
of just reading that we asked you to follow in our toolkit and talking about these accounts of people having to like leave the the art world or what's going on or calling out white supremacy. Sometimes reading or hearing about other people and their struggle or them calling it out not only strengthens me, but makes me feel seen and heard even if it's unrelated me reading about a woman who's just like after four years in the art I had to leave like for my own mental health and even though I changed and I'm just like I've had to let go of some things because they refused to change and it was making me ill and I'm like my gosh like I'm not alone I know it sounds like a weird thing it's the opposite of gaslighting is what it is it's like the normalizing it's like Mm -hmm. someone else having an experience and you recognizing your own experience in that and you're like wait I'm not crazy like this doesn't this isn't just my thing that I'm holding on to other people have experienced a similar thing exactly thank you that made me feel a lot more safe (laughs) I know it sounds weird let me go read about other people's struggles in the system <laughs> but I think, but also for our co conspirators, learn how you approach, report racist activity, uh, rhetoric. Because here's the thing because the system's been made for you, they are more open to listen to you. Once again, we talked about how we don't want to exclude you, we don't want to shame you. We actually need you. We need you there alongside to once again, like, open the door and create those opportunities for your BIPOC fellow students or even faculty. If you see a, fa- a fellow faculty member who is obviously being mistreated, this is an amazing opportunity for you to actually not just block out your Instagram with a little black square or, you know, put stop and paint. You're actually coming alongside them and willing to risk a little bit because someone, your BIPOC friend, coworker, fellow student is actually putting a lot more at risk than you. So mm. risk a little for a greater game. I think that's that's great advice. Something that is also perhaps a little bit from a place of privilege, but something that is really like w- w- this was a, a conversation I was having earlier this week, actually, is like the beauty of deciding when we're talking college, when we're talking mm. higher ed, the beauty of being able to decide where you're going and it not being completely rooted in the cost, if you have the opportunity or the ability to choose and to research um, where you're going. I think we're, we're kind of just told to go like the b- best place that we can get into or, you know, some students like choose proximity to their family or, you know, either if that's close or far um, mm-hmm. for different reasons. But I think being able to actually research who are the people mm-hmm. in this institution and reaching out to current students within that institution are really great. And in this world of, of social media and the internet, and it's, it's so much easier to do like digital tours and searches for people who are going to school there or who are teaching there than it was even when we I know. first graduated high school. I didn't want to say it. Back in my day, you, you yeah. had to go in person to see these places. But you're right. that It is a privilege point, but it's still a really good point. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really, really good one. If you have the opportunity and can do that. There's also the thought of, as a student, while it feels like you have no control over the institution, you actually have a lot of control mm-hmm. because the students are are the customers, as money, it were. Money, money, money. Exactly. So I think 
as a student, you can make you can make demands about the kinds of classes that you want to see. You can make demands about the kind of faculty you'd like to see. I think I didn't realize until I was in grad school that like you can be part of like search committees to a certain extent. Like you can't be making the hiring decisions, <laughs> but you can you can like ask to sit in on sample lectures and you can like record and submit your thoughts about applicants to teach at, at the universities and colleges. So I would say look into those options as well. Oh, now that is really good because we're going to see, we're going to talk about how that differs when you switch into the professional realm. So that's a, a really good little treat there for those in the academic world to take advantage of. Anything else? No, I, I just think like I said, just once again, what we talked about anytime you're dealing because it's it goes beyond the academic, right? And the professional, like, like, like Danny and I said, it does seem like a predominant part of the world is made for and <laughs> inhabits mostly white people. But we talk about having no safe spaces, having that sisterhood, having that brotherhood, having that non-binary hood, having everyone, having just your that circle that you feel ultimately safe with. And we cannot stress that enough as we continue to go forward. It's just, that's just going to like be this ongoing thing, just saying of like, once you have that, that base of having that safe place, like go to that, use that. That is probably one of the greatest resources you can have for your, for your mental health because it is taxing mentally. Yeah. You should just be worrying about getting a good education and, you know, as if school's not hard enough and expensive enough, especially in higher education, you're working to pay for it, you're trying to live, you're trying to get the experience. And now on top of this, you know, you're also trying to just get basic human right or have an education that's encompassing of life around you and what you see. So it's already hard enough. Be kind to yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So this week, we're just going to jump over getting mad. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, unicorns, we're tired. <laughs> we're so tired. <laughs> yeah, It's a great segment. And it's something that we, 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 we do from time to time. But I, I, I think we just, we're just being honest. We're really tired. <laughs> we're tired. We're, we're too really tired, tired to be mad this week. But we are never too tired to get happy. Yes. <laughs> so, Damika, what's your happy place this week? Are you ready for the? I feel like I, I don't always know. bring Am you I? some basic girl stuff, and I'm just like, <laughs> I always All feel right. like, but to me, it's a big deal. So when you move, and you already know this, especially moving overseas, you have to sell or get rid of, or things don't work, or if you put things on a converter, if you guys have never lived overseas, and you've never had to deal with it, your stuff will never work right again. It just won't when you switch it back. It's just not made for that. Okay. Anyway. So a lot of our technology stuff, bless their souls, did not make it. And that's and one of the things was a blender. And no! I, yes. So I, this happy place this week is that we got a blender, a new blender, and she's in, back in business again. So we, you know what, because you know what it's like, like you see one, you have to save up for it or wait for a really good deal. And because it's not a necessity, it's Girl, a luxury. I don't like this adulthood where like kitchen appliances are... <laughs> A thing. 
I do not go into my because I love cooking, and so I'm just like I I I don't want all gadgets, but there are definitely some. I'm like I'm gonna get that gadget, but so you save up your pennies, you wait for a sale, and then you're just like I'm gonna get that blender. So I'm really excited to I I felt like so privileged suburban goodness. I made my daughter some frozen mango whipped with a little orange juice, and she thought it was like the best thing. I like like I had made her a gourmet dessert, and I'm like, girl, that's just some that's just mango slushy, and I just was like but I made it in my new blender. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I look forward to all the basic iced coffee drinks I'm going to make or the soups in the fall. We're just going to have a really lovely life together, this blender and I. You and that blender. Are, yes. are you like a name your kitchen appliances yeah. person? All right. What, what's the blender's <laughs> name? <laughs> So I really, really like Charleston. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. <laughs> I, I really like Charleston. It goes by Charles or Charlie, but I'm, we're feeling it out. I just like Charleston is really cute. Yes, I do name. I'm a habitual stuff namer. I don't get that checked. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's great. What about, what about you, Danny? What is making you happy? Um, mine is a preemptive happy place. It hasn't happened yet. <gasps> Love it. And, and it's like literally going to happen as soon as we hang up here. Um, so my, my husband had to go to the Asian supermarket today because we were out of some of our, some of our essentials. We eat a lot of Asian food, uh, Chinese food, Japanese food, all the foods, Korean food. We eat a lot, um, in this house. So, he had to go get some of the essentials that we were out of, um, especially now that cabbage is coming and okonomiyaki is oh. happening. It's it's a whole thing. But my request was for him to get me a special treat from the Asian <laughs> supermarket. So I don't know what it is. It could be a candy. It could be a drink. It could be anything. Oh, no. But I feel successful. like... I know. I feel like that's the world we live in, where we have to have these small things to look forward to. Like blended mango and treats from the Asian store. Yeah. I love it. Uh, I think that's amazing. And uh, I love it. Which one do you go to? I guess you don't want to disclose it. That's your spot. I mean, we we have lots of ones we go to. He was just <laughs> going to the, the big one here in Albuquerque, Tallinn. But... Oh favorite love it miss it miss it very much well i think when the episode airs i think we should have like a picture you should take a picture and be able to say for those like y'all will understand those who know will know if you made it to the end yeah. of the episode that was your treat you know knowing. yeah <laughs> at least or at least tell me what it is yeah now i, I also know. had a friend who sent me a picture of her like japanese candy she was eating last night and was like translate this for me i mean i know what it is i know that it's a green tea candy but tell me what does all this stuff say um on the package <laughs> and i was like oh it's talking about the gentle harmony between milk and green tea <laughs> just like that's so beautiful i taste it i taste it in the candy. <laughs> I will say that I will say treats from Asian stores just are a lot, lot nicer, a lot prettier, a lot more deeper meaning. <sighs> but Japan, I love you, but you gotta, you gotta scale back the packaging. There's too much plastic. Everything doesn't need to be individually wrapped, please. That that does seem to be intense, but 
We'll get there. Every, every every place, we all need improvement somewhere. But I'm excited to hear about your treat. And I also need to know your top five staples in the kitchen. You can do it off air. Or now. Either or. Your, your must-have um, Asian food items in the kitchen. Oh, Asian food items specifically? Yeah. I mean, I think shoyu, uh, soy sauce, mm-hmm. obviously. Like a, an aka miso, like a red miso. Mm. Um, I think I'm personally really into umeboshi, which are the pickled ume, which is like a Japanese apricot. I made my own a couple of years ago that are really good now, a couple of years into the pickling process from, from plums. Ooh. Um, see, I, I mean, meeting is like in there too, I guess, but. The, the big thing that Ian had to go get is Kewpie, which is my favorite. It's it's Japanese mayonnaise. <laughs> Kewpie. <laughs> and, and rice. And rice. Rice is the last one, of course, obviously. Oh, always. I have to try because we've had this conversation that I don't like mayonnaise, but you keep saying yeah, that it's I'm, different. I'm saying, yeah, it's different. It's better. It's good. Okay. You know, honorary mention to all the other, the other things. Kombu, all the different seaweeds gotta have a collection of seaweed (laughs) in your cabinet (laughs) otherwise you're not living this is good this is this is good this is good now i know like a proper basket to make for you when you come to visit (laughs) i've got all the inside stuff it's just like here's a basket of seaweed danny (laughs) yeah exactly i'm I'm like like, oh my favorite things Y'all be on the lookout for that basket of seaweed. (laughs) All right. Well, we want to invite all of you to share your experiences with us. Um, As we mentioned in the toolkit intro, we're specifically happy to amplify any of your experiences with PWIs, negative, positive, whatever. You can share them with us. You can send them to us via email by racialunicorns at gmail.com or you can send it to us via social media. We're on Instagram at biracialunicorns, Facebook at biracialunicorns, and Twitter at biracialmagic. We want to give a huge shout out to our supporters and those who contributed to Biracial Unicorns, including the amazing Deli Pop Art, who's made our amazing and iconic uh, unicorn. Uh, I can literally just watch her page. She's incredibly talented, go check her out. The amazing Joseph Scott, who's done our intro and outro song, and So Smith Photography, who's done some lovely candid photos of Danny and I. The only modern photos of Danny and I together. So it's it's a very, very like precious thing right there. Also, if you have time, if you could listen and rate our show and write like a little positive comment, we would really appreciate that. That just helps uh, boost our visibility. And like I said, we're not trying to get rich off of this, but what we're trying to do is making sure this information gets out there. If you feel like dropping some coin please feel free to buy us a coffee all the information is linked down into our show notes all right and as as always if you just need a voice to listen to unicorns are here danny already gave out our information we just be safe out there unicorns yes be safe out there we'll be back next week with a minisode and in two weeks with our next part about surviving pwis Mm -hmm. all right y'all peace out